0: Just make sure I'm on. I have way too much technology attached to my body this morning. Uh, Good morning and thanks again for coming out uh, to IPC. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, We are continuing our series this week uh, called Underqualified. And what we're doing is we're spending the summer going through all of the disciples, giving a little bit of a character profile, learning a little bit about who they are and what they did in hopes of being able to relate a little bit to them and what they felt and the experiences that they had. My goal, my hope out of this series uh, is that each of us walk away with one or two instances, even, uh, which seems like not that many out of ten, but hopefully we can get there. Um, I know there's 12 disciples, there's only ten weeks in the series. I've read the book. Um, Uh, But even if you pull a couple of uh, similarities between a couple of the disciples, that's great. Because it's unlikely that you're like every single one of them, but maybe you can find one or two things in there uh, that will give you the confidence to go out and share the gospel with those around you in the same ways that they did. So in uh, the first week, we kind of did a preview. In the second week, we did uh, one on Peter. We talked about how he was the leader and the rock. And then last week, we talked about his brother, Andrew. Uh, and his brother, who uh, was always sort of referred to as the brother, uh, who was a little more quiet behind the scenes, but still an incredible leader. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about James, the son of Zebedee. So uh, before we get into that, I have a question for you. Uh, do, Do any of you have, or have any of you ever been given a nickname Okay, so a couple of giggles here, right? So nicknames are kind of, they they usually do two things. Either they shorten a name that's really long or it's like a term of endearment or has something to do with your personality. I'm a hockey player, which means um, that uh, when you nickname hockey players it always ends in an R or in a Y. So if I were to hockey player nickname all of our elders, uh, it, you know, uh, Brian would probably be Rank or Ranky, right? Uh, Jason would be Mackie or Big Mac, because you, you don't want to go into the corners with Jason, that would be terrifying, right? Kelly would be Essie, Wendy, you'd probably be Lancer, which is like really super awesome, that's a good nickname. Uh, and Clayton would be Mose or Moser or Mosey, right? Something like that, something Catchy. So often I notice that a lot of times nicknames are longer than actual names, which just shows you kind of that endearment factor. I had a couple. My last name's Wazluck, so of course I was Wazzy for hockey. Um, When I was in Bible college, I was going to get a picture, and then I didn't. I had hair down past my shoulders, um, and so people would... uh, There was a handful of guys that started calling me Kevin Sorbo, which was pretty funny, so then that just resorted to He-Man, and I did not have the physique, but apparently I had the hair. Uh, and then I was playing hockey with a team one, one year, it was a men's league, and they found out that I worked at a church, and so there was this guy that just called me Preacher Man. And that was it. And there's nothing like screaming down the left field, uh, or the, the left wing, and you just hear, preach! He wants a pass, that's great, it that was really good. Or you're in a scrum, and you get them, preach, you get 'em. <laughs> Maybe i got to check myself for a minute. Oh, anyways, turn to the person next to you for just 30 seconds. See if you've ever developed a nickname that, uh, that you know about. Just 30 seconds and then, then you can come back. Hopefully, uh, hopefully a couple of good ones in there. Now we know from the first week that uh, Peter was renamed The Rock, but James, he and his brother John, they had a nickname as well. And it was uh, Boenergies, energies which translated into Sons of Thunder. What a beauty nickname, Sons of Thunder is. What do you think about... When you think about sons of thunder, right? You think about somebody with a big personality that's large. Somebody maybe passionate, zealous, a little off the handle, a little bit of a loose cannon, right? Somebody that means well, by all means necessary. (laughs) Right? The son of thunder. And I think that would be a great way to describe James, right? Somebody who was passionate and had uh, a lot of zeal he was zealous and, and in the, the the couple of biblical accounts that we have where we have stories about James we can see him uh, he runs a little bit hot now the first thing we learn about James is that he is often referred to as the son of Zebedee now biblically we don't have a great sense of who Zebedee is there's a couple of extra biblical accounts here that lead us to think maybe Zebedee was a levite and had a relationship with a chief priest, but we know that Zebedee must have been important because in Matthew chapter 20 and in 26, and in Mark chapter 10, and in Luke chapter 5, these two, James and John, are only referred to as the sons of Zebedee. So that kind of tells us that Zebedee was probably a bit of a big deal. Now we know that Zebedee had a fishing company that was probably a fairly prominent family, fairly well off. We know that from Scripture that he had enough of a large enough fishing company to employ uh, people under under his company there like that. So that was great. And so when you come from a family that is fairly prominent and then you're the oldest in this time period, it stands to reason that this is somebody who would like, you know, feel like he was a bit of a big deal, maybe a little bit thunderous. Something was going on. He was owed something. He was the first in line. He was a leader, and we see this as we go through Scripture and as he is one of, of course, that core group, right? Uh, In in Scripture, we see a couple times uh, where, actually, can you throw that chart up? I know I'm putting you on the spot there, sorry. There's a couple times in Scripture where we see him in the group of four named right after Peter, and those uh, two spots are going to show up right now right there they are so in Matthew we see the list and it goes Peter Andrew but in Mark we see Peter James and then again in Acts we see Peter uh in James so what one of these things these things tells us is when we read scripture we know that order of names actually means something so that James is sort of second there actually is significant likely puts him in a leadership position now James was never the first one thanks Ty so much for the chart I'm sorry to do that to you uh Uh, James is never the first in this list, but James is the first to be martyred for his faith. He is the first to be crucified. And he was martyred by Herod, which tells you something. It probably means not only was he the first one to make everybody so upset that they wanted him gone, but somebody in a very prominent position did that. So he probably didn't have a hard time making enemies in powerful places, if that. Makes sense, which is, you know, comes along with being the son of thunder, right? Uh, James is one of the only ones in the inner circle to see uh, a handful of things. He's the only one to see the transfiguration along with uh, Peter and John in Matthew 17. Uh, he's there on the Mount of Olives uh, questioning Jesus with a small group and is also uh, in private prayer with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just before jesus is taken away and all of these experiences sort of strengthen his faith so there's actually a lot about james we can figure out and deduce even though we don't have a ton of stories now there is one story that i do want to share with you because i think it shows that passion and for us this is kind of what i want us to look at this morning Right now, again, because of the time and the place and the culture we're in, and because of the last two years, and because of how it's polarized us, and because we've been tempted to run our theology through our ideology first, there are moments where our passion overtakes our grace or our understanding of what God is calling us to do. And when you are a son of thunder, sometimes that can happen. Those thunderclaps can ring out a little bit louder than the grace. And so as we go through this story, that's kind of what I want you to look for. And if you've ever been a son or a daughter or a child of thunder, I'm looking at you. I'm just kidding. I know you're wonderful. Um, Maybe this is one of those moments where you can look at too. So let's check it out here. Let's start in Luke chapter 9. 51. Uh, In your Bibles, this might be labeled as the Samaritan uh, opposition, so let's go here. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, "Lord, would you like us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them?" But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, uh, "Then he and, uh, and, and rebuked them, and then he and his disciples went on to another village." Now this this maybe looks like a bit of a small a small blip, a short little part of the story, right? jesus is moving from one place to another place and then uh they get interrupted they want to stay somewhere they don't get the chance james and uh, john run a little bit hot jesus says calm down and then we move on but this is the great thing about scripture is that these five little verses tell a huge story now the first part of the story is the path that they take so i've got another map up there i think for you ty and this is really significant because to go from, oh, that's uh, probably my fault. Okay, so they're in Galilee, and they're headed to Judea. They're headed to Jerusalem. And you can see in the middle is Samaria. And right down the middle between the blue there and the green and the purple is the Jordan River. Now, what would happen often if Jews were going from Galilee to Judea is they would avoid Samaria, which means they would cross the Jordan and Galilee... They would go through that other section of sort of desert and not a whole lot there and not a great road and not a whole lot going on. And they would cross the Jordan again just to avoid Samaria. But Jesus, it says, is resolutely on his way to Jerusalem. That means that he's not going to stop. He's not going to slow down. He's not going to go right. He's not. He's going to go right through um, Samaria. Now, We've talked about Samaritans a little before. We know the story of the Good Samaritan. We've heard about that. And we know that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. But I'm going to read you a small excerpt from this book, which is where a lot of this series is getting pulled from, by the way. This book is called Twelve Ordinary Men. Uh, It's an awesome read. You should check it out. Um, Unless you haven't liked this series, then it's terrible. And this series doesn't have anything to do with me at all. It's all, no, it's been great. And so... Here's uh, what's written here about the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a mixed race offspring of Israelites from the northern kingdom. When Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, the most prominent and influential people in their tribes, uh, in the Israelite tribes, were taken into captivity, and the land was resettled with pagans and foreigners who were loyal to the Assyrians. Now, this sounds like a little bit of history, but I want you to listen to it like a story because it's really cool. Poor Israelites who remained in the land intermarried with those pagans, and from the beginning, the interloping pagans didn't prosper in the land because they didn't fear the Lord. So the king of Assyria sent back one of the priests whom he had taken captive in order to teach people to fear the Lord. So they've taken God out of the land. The land isn't prospering. The king goes, "Okay, we'll send, we'll send one back in," and the result was a religion that blended elements of truth and paganism. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they carried with them. In other words, they still claimed to worship Jehovah, or God, and they accepted the Pentateuch as Scripture, but they founded their own priesthood, They built their own temple and devised a sacrificial system of their own making. So in short, they made a new religion based in part of pagan traditions and in part of Jewish traditions. And the Samaritan's religion is a classic example of what happens when the authority of Scripture is subjected to human tradition. Now there's a lot even just in that small statement that we don't have a ton of time to get to. But this is how it was. This was a group... That were looked at as folks as the Israelites looked at as the Jews looked at as people who were unclean who didn't get it, who turned their back on Jehovah and who were then hostile towards them and the Samaritans felt the same way in fact there was this, there was an area in Samaria where uh, they believed that all Jews should worship they didn 't believe they should worship in Jerusalem. And since that's where Jesus and the rest of the company were headed, they were upset about all of these things. And because of all this, not because there wasn't any room at the inn, but because of all this tension and history between these two groups, they were turned away from being there. And so John and James, seeing that there's a problem, they come up with a solution. They go, hey, Jesus... Do you just want us to call fire down from heaven and burn all of these people for you? Okay, a couple problems here. First, they don't have the authority or the power to do that. <laughs> right? Have you ever been a little overzealous, a little overpassionate, and said, hey, do you want me to do this for you, but really you know there was no way you could actually do that thing? <laughs> okay, so this is James and John getting a little bit up and speaking out of turn. Right? And also... This is a historical statement because this happened previously. Now, normally, I don't jump around Scripture a lot on you. I try to stay singular in one spot. But there's one more story that I want to share with you because it gives context into how big and impactful this one little statement by James and John is and how Jesus reacts to it. So in 1 Kings 1, there's the story... Of Elijah and it goes like this After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, Eziah, uh, no, sorry, as <clears throat> has, Ahaz- wow, the trick when you're reading the Bible in tough names is to do it fast and confidently, and then nobody knows that you're struggling. <sighs> <clears throat> We're just going to go. Ahaziah had followed through, fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria, and he had injured himself. So he sent messengers saying, Go and consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. Now, Baalzebub was kind of named, the, that was one of the gods in Assyria, and uh, the nickname was the Lord of the Flies. And speaking of nicknames, the Jews would give uh, this particular god the nickname not Beelzebub, but Belzbul, which meant dung. So they would kind of, you know, we've talked about nicknames, they nicknamed this god the god of dung instead of the lord of the flies, but we move on from there. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going off to consult Beelzebub, the god of Akron. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, you will not leave the bed you are lying on, you will certainly die. So this guy gets injured, he falls through this lattice, he says, go out and ask the priests of this god whether or not I'm going to survive. These uh, servants get interrupted halfway through by Elijah, who gets a calling from heaven uh, from God who says, you're going to die. When the messengers returned to the king, he asks, Why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they said, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell them, This is the Lord. And he says, It is because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Beelzebub, the God of Akron. Therefore you will not leave this bed you are lying on, you will certainly die. And the king said, What kind of man is it that you met and told you this? And they replied, he had a garment of hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, that is Elijah of Tishbite. Now, I would imagine the tone of that isn't the way I said it. It's probably, any Seinfeld fans here? Raise your hand if you ever watched Seinfeld. Like four people. Okay, that's not going to work. Okay, have you ever met somebody before, and you, you know it's that person, and you're like, oh, it's that guy. Right? In Seinfeld, it's Newman. Every time Newman comes around, Jerry goes, Newman, right? Okay, I I still got the four laughs, so that's what I was going for. I would imagine this is how the king said it. He goes, oh, you met Elijah. That's fine. So what he did is this. He said, then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill, and he said to him, man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this the king sent Elijah another captain and another fifty men. Because why not? He's not the one going. And Elijah said, If I have a man of God... May fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire fell from heaven and consumed his fifty men. So the king sent a third captain with his fifty men. Now, this captain heard the story the first time, and so he had a second thought, which was good of him. And the third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect. For my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants, see, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down to be with, uh, with him to be with the king. He told the king, this is what the Lord said. It is because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Beelzebub, the God of Akron. Because you have done this, you will never leave this bed you are lying on and you will certainly die. And so he did according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Now, that's, a really, like, that's one of those cool, epic, biblical Old Testament tales that we listen to and we go, yeah, God is powerful. And Elijah had the power of God with him. And, 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 and. And James and John know this story. Not only do James and John and the rest of Jesus' followers know this story, in this region where they're getting turned down is around where this story happens. So there's precedence. Right? There's a remembering of the story. And there's knowing that God has done it before and can do it again. And with all that, and maybe just a little bit too much oomph, James and John go, do you want us to cast fire down on these people who won't let you in? And Jesus rebukes them. Jesus says, no. We're just going to go somewhere else. And at the end of that scripture, we see that they moved along to a different part of the way. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, James and John, and these are the types of things that we need to kind of humbly remember as followers of Jesus because we are all people that are super passionate about getting other people to get to know Jesus, and that's really important. But where we overstep for a minute are these spots where James and John overstep. First, one, we don't have the power and authority to do everything that God has the power and authority to do. That's a really important thing for us to remember because a lot of times, We forget, me included. I've been a Christian for 30 years. I've been reading the Bible my whole life. I've done Bible college. I've led worship. I've hung out with camp with this cool guy. I've gone to pitch and praise with people like Rachel. I've gone to all of these cool things. I've been in church my whole life. It's awesome, it's awesome, it's awesome. And sometimes, every once in a while, a little bit of that creeps in that goes, I can talk like God can talk. And this is Jesus reminding James and John going, no, no. (laughs) I appreciate your passion and I appreciate your zeal, but there is only one God and Lord in heaven and you and I and James wasn't it. So that passion is great, but it just needs to be harnessed a little bit. Second reason that Jesus says no and rebukes is that because this Old Testament story is incredible. It shows the power and the force of God, but it also shows a time before Jesus where we led with grace. And James and John are going, they're leading with zeal and passion and a little bit of violence and a little bit of destruction and a little bit of you better or else. But Jesus goes, hold on, wait a minute. That's not how we approach people in a world full of grace. We still speak truth. We still hold true to the things that our Lord calls us to do and tells us to do. But we don't approach things with that level of zeal. We approach with grace first. And this is what Jesus teaches James and John there. And this is really, really interesting because sometimes that's us. We can get a little bit caught up in the rhetoric, in the passion, in the zeal, where we put ourselves in a spot where we feel like we have the power to cast down fire, where really what Jesus was leading James and John to learn is to lead with grace. Their motives aren't wrong, right? Do you want to cast down fire? The motives aren't necessarily wrong. It's just the action. And that's, that, that's kind of that balance that we as people still need to figure out. Because passion without grace is what James and John tried. Passion without grace doesn't really work. Not since Jesus came around. Passion without grace is you yelling at somebody and not listening to what they're talking about. Passion without grace is you not being empathetic. Passion without grace is being the fire and the judgment, not the path to Jesus. So fire, or so passion without grace doesn't really work. But grace without passion doesn't really work either. Because in order to be able to drop a whole bunch of grace onto somebody, in order to be able to step back, to take a breath, to remember that they're God's creation too. To remember that no matter what they just did or what they just said, your called. your role is to take a breath and, and, and show grace. That takes passion too. Because showing grace is very hard <laughs> in most circumstances. Because in most circumstances where grace is required... Somebody has probably done something wrong and it's probably affected you. And so passion without grace doesn't work, but grace without passion doesn't work either. And this is that fine line that James needed to learn how to walk. And that's that fine line that you and I need to learn how to walk too. We need to be passionate about Jesus. We need to be zealous enough to have the inner fire to cast it down from heaven but instead of doing that, we need to fill people with grace instead. And that's hard. It's really, like, it's a really nice thing for me to come up and say, hey, remember to be gracious this week. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, okay. And we walk out and we have a copy and we're going to be gracious. And then the moment where we need to be gracious, that's where the rubber hits the road. And believe me when I tell you, it's not just you, it's me too. And there are moments where I... Uh, transition straight into grace and it's super easy and there are fire moments where i just go i just want to burn it down that is enough of that and it's jesus who always comes around and goes just check yourself a little bit remember what you've been called to do remember what you've been saved by you haven't been saved by fire from heaven right fire from heaven comes down These guys have somewhere to stay for the night. All their enemies are taken care of. But we are not saved by fire and brimstone from heaven. We are saved by grace. And that's what we need to walk into the world and try to act like. So, James, the son of thunder... The one who was always on the line or sometimes just a little bit over it. I'm sure you are just as passionate as James was about something. My challenge for you, my challenge for me as we go through this week is as we learn about James and try to take that one trait from him is that we take that passion and that zeal that we have for whatever that thing is or those moments where the fire bubbles up And we try to transfer that into grace as quickly and as passionately as possible. We were talking uh, with, I was talking with a group of people this week where we were talking about how this idea of, of we can talk about Jesus all we want. We can talk about faith. We can know our scripture. We can quote Bible verses. And all of those things are great and wonderful and good and have a spot. But when we act differently, that's what people notice. When people see grace in moments that they're not expecting it, that's what people make, makes people turn their head. When people see somebody of faith act in a way that nobody else would act in that situation, that's the thing that goes, wow, they're different. Because nobody can see the inside of your head and see how much Scripture you've memorized or how well you know whatever creed that you know, or how many bumper stickers you have in your car, but if you have that bumper sticker in your car and you cut somebody off and throw something at them, how good is that? (laughs) That's passion without grace. So let's take a page from James's book, The Passion Part. Let's take the lesson that Jesus taught him, the grace part. And let's try to walk into our week this week like that. Because there's no doubt as you move through, you're going to meet somebody who doesn't know Jesus, who you'd love to talk to Him about, but you're going to need a little bit of grace in that conversation first for understanding, for rhetoric, for things that they think and feel. You're going to have to let it all out. You're going to have to have the conversation. Have the grace to do that. Stand out. Be different. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get you just for two minutes there. Normally, I would pray over this portion to end. But what we're going to do is I'm going to get you to bow your head and just pray on your own. I want you to think about a moment that could come up this week, because some of you already know what it is, or something maybe that happened recently. Or just a general feeling that you have, an area where you know you need a little bit more of God's grace. And I want you to spend the next two minutes intentionally praying for that. Thank God for what he's done for you and what he's given you. Thank him for the wisdom and the guidance you've had so far, and then just pray for grace. And then I'll come in, I'll finish the prayer, and we'll sing our last song. So let's pray together.